FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being with us for today's live edition of Political Rewind. I want to briefly say at the very outset of the show that if my audio doesn't sound as you normally hear it, it's because I'm uh, doing the show by phone. Uh, My family and I have taken a few days off and uh, we're down at the coast. And um, we had initially planned on uh, giving everybody the day off today. Uh, because the Thanksgiving holiday is really a good time for everyone to rest. But Natalie, Sam, Sarah, Jesse, and I all felt that um, the Arbery verdict, the verdict in the Arbery case, um, the trial itself, probably one of the most significant events and news stories that um, certainly I've ever covered in my 35 plus years in Georgia. And so it felt really important uh, to be here today. And I'm grateful to my team. Uh, for doing it, and certainly am grateful to our panelists who are going to talk about uh, their feelings about what happened uh, with us today. Before we actually introduce everybody, I'm going to give you just a couple of quick thoughts, but I want to first play the sound from Ahmaud Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, when she emerged from the courthouse after uh, the verdict. Let's listen to what she said. I never thought this day would come, but God is good. Yes, he is. And I just want to tell everybody, thank you. Thank you for those who marched, those who who prayed, most of all, the the ones who prayed. Yes, Lord. Thank you, God. Yes, Lord. Thank you. And now, now, Quez, which which you know him as Ahmad, I know him as Quez. Yes. He will now rest in peace. Amen. Thank you. Reason I wanted to start with that is I suspect, like a lot of you, uh, my immediate reaction when I saw her and heard her talk was certainly a sense of relief that the three men um, who murdered him were convicted. But I thought she's been living a life with this trial hanging over her for so long, and there's been an anxiety, of, of course, but also a certain focus that this has got to move forward. And it hit me really hard that. Only in the aftermath is she going to have the time to stop and think about just how devastating, again, the loss of her son is. She did not have a mod at Thanksgiving. And I think that's an important way to frame the whole conversation. We're jubilant about the verdict, but we also understand why it came about in the first place. All right. That's that's my little talk about how I felt watching this. And I want to turn now and get reactions from our terrific panel today, starting with Patricia Murphy, my partner on the Friday show. You all know Patricia is political reporter and columnist at the AJC. Her political insider column appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And of course, she oversees the jolt in at AJC.com. Patricia, how are you today? Thank you for being here today after Thanksgiving, Patricia. Of course. Well, good morning, Bill, and thanks for having me. We're also joined today by Professor Andrew Gillespie, political science professor at Emory University, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. To you too, Andra, I'm so grateful that you would take the time today to do the show. Thank you for having me. 
And Margaret Coker is here, editor-in-chief of The Current, a nonprofit um, media outlet. Um, I'm, I, I'm, Margaret, you should tell me the words I need to use for an online publication. Uh, the Current is a tremendously uh, vital addition to the journalistic community in the state of Georgia, based down in Savannah, covering a lot of the news of the coast, including the trial. Margaret, thanks for coming. And tell me, how do I refer to an online publication these days? I think the easiest phrase is probably digital news organization. Ah, so, okay. Yep. Nonprofit, okay. nonpartisan digital news organization. Thank you. And, and, and I, I am so uh, grateful that you all took time away from what was a day off for all of us uh, to be with us. So I want to do something that I don't do very often. I want to just ask an open-ended question of all three of you. I would like you to share with us your thoughts, your feelings, um, your interpretations of what happened uh, when the jury returned its verdict and what it means. Uh, Patricia, you're my Friday partner. Let me start with you. Um, well, I think that with the verdicts, there was uh, certainly a great sense of relief, um, really across the state, across the country. I think people were so worried. It's something that wasn't so obviously uh, malicious murder if it wasn't found to be so um, in a court of law in South Georgia, um, there could just be really horrific ramifications. Um, above and beyond that, um, in the way that I think people do feel that justice has been served, there is a significant change coming, I think, in the way that these cases are handled locally in smaller jurisdictions. I think one of the most important um, pieces of news that we've gotten in the last week is that Jackie Johnson, the DA in Brunswick, has been indicted for her role in this, um, her role in uh, potentially covering it up. Uh, and so I think um, this is the beginning of a really important uh, phase for uh, Georgia's justice system and the country's. Yeah, I, I think a lot of what you just said I want to get to during the course of the show today, including not forgetting how this all started with with a, if not a formal cover-up, with an informal cover-up of the event itself. Um, Andre Gillespie, uh, tell us how, how you're thinking about this today. Well, as an African-American person, I think probably the most important thing for me and, and, and my family was the idea that my mother called me in the middle of trying to, you know, get ready for Thanksgiving to make sure that I had heard about the decision. And that doesn't happen that often. Like, I remember my mom was the one to call to tell me about the 9-11 attack. Um, and the fact that she felt it so important to share that moment with me to consider the, the information, I think sums up sort of how important this was in terms of, of questions related to racial justice. This is something that a lot of people felt personally, um, especially as the racial rhetoric in, you know, the trial kind of escalated to the point that it was just becoming patently offensive to listen to some of the things that were being said. Um, so that was something that, you know, that I thought about. Uh, I, I remembered on Wednesday night uh, waiting. My dad needed to pick me up for something, and there was another woman waiting nearby, and she was watching the verdict on her phone. And so I could sort of just how significant and how important this was, but as everybody was getting ready for the Thanksgiving holiday, that people were taking time to stop and reflect about this. Um, 
you know, this is one event. This isn't going to completely, like, you know, get rid of hundreds of years of discrimination and inequality um, and oppression. Hopefully, and I have to say that I'm, I'm not too hopeful about this, but this should be one of those moments that allows us to reflect about why we respond so positively when the, when the uh, discrimination is obvious, uh, but we sit and argue about things related to systemic oppression that people are telling you that people of color, particularly Black people, on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this was the outcome that should have happened. I expected that this one was likely to happen. As the moment Travis McMichael kind of testified and told on himself, I figured that a, a, a guilty verdict was likely at least for him. But when Black people tell you that they are being oppressed in other ways, right, we shouldn't have to have video evidence of somebody getting shot uh, and, and people making overtly racist comments in a trial for, for it to be taken seriously. And I, I think that that's the next step of our journey. I think that's one of the reasons that I've heard it repeated, and I, I mentioned it at the very top in the headlines to the show, that there are many people who are saying we have to be very careful to remember that the verdict, the outcome of one trial is not a referendum on social justice in the country at all. It's just one step, perhaps, on a much longer road. Margaret, you were in, Brun in Brunswick. You were at the courthouse um, when the jury came in and when the, uh, uh, the judge read the verdict. Um, talk to us. Tell us anything about, reflect in any way on what you're thinking today, but it would be great if you'd also share with us what it was like to be there at that moment. Yeah, I, it, there's a lot to unpack here. You know, the emotions, I'm not sure that I've processed all of them as a person, let alone as a journalist, because, you know, we're, we're trained to be observers and, and then weigh, weigh fact and, and offer guidance about what those facts actually mean. But, you know, as a person, when you're in the midst of, of a tremendous um, and joyful crowd, you can't help but feel swept away from the emotions that, that are experienced all around you. You know, um, Wanda Cooper-Jones and Marcus Arbery, um, Ahmad Arbery's parents, they have been incredibly incredibly stoic and incredibly dignified in, in the way in which they have um, borne this, um, this pain over the last 18 months. You know, Wanda Cooper-Jones um, fought this very lonely fight for 73 days um, to try and get answers about what had happened to her son. And the, um, you know, the community of Brunswick, which of course is a majority minority town in, in coastal Georgia, they rallied around her and helped to raise the profile of, of this killing. And really, if it wasn't for the pressure that they as, as community leaders and just concerned citizens uh, put on this case, there, there, there wouldn't have been a trial. And that's, I think what, what Wanda was referencing in those introductory um, 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 uh, remarks that, that you played for us, Bill. I mean, as, as, a, as a Georgian, I feel immensely proud right now that, that you know, good, righteous people have stood up um, to be counted. And that includes the people of the jury. It includes prosecutors in this case and, you know, Wanda's uh, own lawyer, um, Lee Merritt, who's running for attorney general in the state of Texas. She also talked about this um, when when the verdict came down. It is not easy for black people to put their faith in the criminal justice system. And he talked about how hard it was to trust the prosecution team to actually put together a, a strong um, fact based uh, uh, set of evidence in order to get this conviction. And so there is a huge, huge, uh, you know, history and uh, recent history of 
of discrimination um, across Georgia. But the conversations are ongoing. There is recognition of what good looks like. There's recognition of what bad looks like. And, you know, last year when the Republican Party and the Democratic Party came together in order to pass much needed legislation and amend a very, very bad law in Georgia, you know, that that gives me hope that that we as Georgians can move forward into a better future. So um, thank you for uh, all of you for those remarks. Um, Patricia, uh, obviously, um, there was um, a a great outcry when the jury selection finally uh, was completed. And we knew we knew that they had put 11 uh, white people, one black person on that jury. Um, Linda Donikowski herself, the prosecutor, argued vociferously that it was an unfair uh, panel. And, and, And so maybe the most obvious uh, uh, I think event to talk about in, in terms of this is the fact that it was 11 white people who came together and found these three men, members of their own community, you know, people they could recognize, people who they related to, who looked like them and yet found them uh, guilty. And and I think that's one of the reasons for the great the jubilation that surrounded the jury. It may not have been the same if the jury was, say, made up of seven uh, whites and five black people. We don't know that for a fact. But the way the circumstances of this played out with that jury are really important. I think that's exactly right. I also uh, was really interested that the makeup of the jury uh, that was mostly female. Um, and so it was not a group of people who were um, typically exactly like uh, the defendants in this case, who I think you would kind of, you know, sort of classify as maybe good old boys, sort of men who had been a part of the power structure um, of uh, South Georgia for a long time. Um, But I think it does show that uh, particularly the prosecution and the way that um, the Cobb County DA's office came in and chose to prosecute this case on um, so specifically on the facts. And it was a a prosecution, I think, that was um, largely devoid of um, racial conversation in a way that I think made some people uncomfortable. I think that people who were really concerned about uh, the murder itself um, saw so much of uh, race playing into how it happened. But the Cobb DA's um, prosecution uh, mostly avoided that. I don't know if that made it easier for a Glenn County jury to um, to passed down all of these murder convictions, but it certainly turned out to be the right choice. Um, But I think it also, when you have a a jury of your peers, many of those people are most intimately familiar with the shortcomings of a community. Um, That's not just Glen County. That would be if you live in an area um, and you know it for its good and for its bad. Um, And I'd be so interested to know as this reporting comes out, if that is a part of the dynamic here, that um, you don't have to be um, on the on the wrong side of racial injustice to understand that it exists and to understand that it's a problem um, and a deadly problem in many cases. So um, I'll really look forward to the reporting on this, um, and particularly the current reporting has been just so uh, in the details of how this came to pass. And I think uh, they'll also help us take the lessons away um, that we're going to need in the, in the coming months and years uh, to figure out how to make sure this doesn't happen again. 
Um, yeah, I, let, let's dig down on that. Margaret and then Andra, I'd love to get you uh, to comment. Um, Richard Fawcett filed a piece for uh, the New York Times yesterday um, on uh, uh, Linda Donikowska, the how, how the prosecutor, uh, uh, Linda Donkowski, uh decided not to emphasize race. Uh, she certainly mentioned it. And we impossibly, it is conceivable that one of the most important statements, Margaret, she made was essentially in her rebuttal when she said, essentially, and I'm not quoting her directly, and maybe you know the quote, um, essentially said, uh, this, they, 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 they chased him because he was a black man running in the community. And that's as close as she came to arguing this case on the basis of race. But Richard Fawcett writes, uh, despite the evidence of racism she had at her uh, disposal, Linda Donikowski stunned some legal observers by largely avoiding race during the trial, choosing instead to hew closely to the details of how the three men had chased the black man, Ahmad Arbery. The risks went beyond her career and a single trial. Failure to convict in a, fa- a case that many saw as an obvious act of racial violence would reverberate well outside Glynn County, Georgia. For some, it would be a referendum on a country that appeared to have made tentative steps last summer toward confronting only devolved into deeper divisions. Margaret? Now, first of all, I um, tip my hat to um, Linda Demikowski and her prosecution team. They they put together a airtight, um, open and shut sort of case. And then to the outside legal observers, I will um, remind them that Linda Demikowski was not prosecuting this case for the nation. She was prosecuting the case on behalf of the Arbery family. And so she chose a strategy that wasn't going to address our need as Americans to talk about race and racial justice. She was going to talk um, about justice for Ahmad. And so under Georgia criminal statute, you do not have to prove intent and you do not have to prove motivation. All she had to do was prove that these men killed uh, killed Ahmad Arbery, and that's what she did. There is a separate federal case that is coming up um, early next year that involves hate crimes, and those federal prosecutors will have to prove racism and prove racial motivations for, for the actions taken by the two McMichaels and William Roddy Bryan. So with due respect to all of us in the nation who'd like to see a, a more evolved and progressive community when it comes to racial justice, that wasn't her goal and that wasn't um, her, um, it, it wasn't what she needed to accomplish. And that said, the Arbery family and you know the people of Brunswick are, are praising her to the moon and back for, for the work that she did um, in, in, to help them get past this incredibly traumatic moment. Um, to their jury selection process, you know, I sat through um, the two and a half weeks of, of the jury selection, which, again, involved an enormous funnel of people in Glen County to um, be, see, you know, go through this sieve in order to find people who had no fixed opinion about what had happened um, um, on February 23rd, 2020. And I watched dozens of people, white people and black people, who went through the jury selection and who got struck off for cause because they had seen the video that we've all now seen and saw it to be murder and saw it to be a hate crime. And this is what the mood of the community was, overwhelmingly, black and white, that this was a hate crime and this was murder. So in large part, um, the prosecution didn't have to prove racism because the community already saw that for what it was. I just want to piggyback off of uh, what Margaret just said. I don't think she had to say anything 
because she had the video evidence, because there was the audio testimony um, of what the McMichaels had said, um, it was obvious that race was there. And so you see it, you know, she doesn't have to beat you over the head with it. But to Margaret's point, the other issue is that because Georgia didn't have a hate crime statute at the time, it wasn't actually particularly relevant to this case. So her primary job in this case was to dismantle the argument that this was a legitimate self-defense citizen's arrest type of um, activity. And she's actually able to use the defendant's words against them in order to be able to prove that. And so if you strip away all of the other stuff and then get down to the heart of that question and the fact that Travis Michael in particular did himself in favors by testifying in his own defense, that actually helps to, to make the case. And it doesn't allow for, especially if you're not quite sure where the jury stands, um, for them to allow their own um, their their own emotions, their own uh, you know prejudices to get in the way. Um, you know, but I think the other thing to, to to keep in mind here is that you know while she didn't talk about race, there still are things that we have to address in the system. I think a lot of people look at the jury selection process, and particularly the elimination of some of the last possible African American jurors as something that was inappropriate. Like, you know, during the last couple of weeks, as we've talked about this and, and, and I've been on the show, like I started looking up Batson versus Kentucky, which is the Supreme Court case that says you can't exclude people um, on the basis of race. And, and, and it was just like, okay, so the prosecution definitely can't do this. I was like, I thought this applied to both sides of the case. And my reading of the case law there still suggests that that is the case. We're still going to have to address those issues. And I think in the long term, as the defendant lawyers say that they're going to appeal the case, it was like Donikowski gave uh, gave them no recourse to talk about any type of misconduct at all. And if anybody did things that were inappropriate, I think it raises questions and invites an investigation about what they did that was inappropriate during this trial. So I think what she did was understated and brilliant. Mm. Um, Margaret, do you want to jump back in? Yeah, just quickly again about the jury selection process. You know, the bar um, under in in Georgia. You know, the case law is what the J Judge Wansley in in Brunswick. He he personally put into the record that he believed that discrimination was part of the jury selection process by the defense. But he has to make his rulings about who can be on the jury and who can't based on Georgia case law. And in different states and jurisdictions, including uh, the District of Columbia, uh, the this uh, very important bar about what constitutes racial discrimination and who can be selected and who gets deselected from juries is interpreted differently in different states. Georgia has a very low bar when it comes to um, this question. And so moving forward, I, I, would, um, I would hope that, that uh, legal reform advocates would look at this and figure out ways in which that bar can be raised on behalf of all of us, um, all of us in Georgia, that is. So, Patricia, um, a, a couple things I'd like to uh, address uh, with you. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'm going to give you two separate things to start us up. <laughs> Number one, I don't think we can underestimate the role that Judge Wamsley, Timothy Wamsley, played in this case. If, if Linda Donikowski uh, lowered the temperature in terms of making this a trial about race, which ironically Kevin Goff, uh, uh, the attorney uh, for Roddy Bryant uh, uh, did the opposite of. Wamsley was a calm presence in the midst of all this. He was very, very upset with Kevin Goff's comments about race. But throughout the trial, it, it, it seemed that Wamsley was, was very low-key. He's a quiet, soft-spoken judge. And I, I, I suspect that, too, helped 
lower the temperature uh, in the in the courtroom throughout this. But here's what I also want to ask you about. I think it's really important that given the outcome was so positive, we don't forget the history of what happened here. We go back to February 23rd, the day that Ahmad Arbery was murdered by these three men. And we know that it was weeks and weeks, 73 days uh, until anything happened. The, uh, the uh, Brunswick Circuit DA, Jackie Johnson, refused to bring charges. Um, she passed it on to George Barnhill, the Waycross Circuit DA. And Barnhill actually wrote a letter to law enforcement in Brunswick saying, I think you don't do anything. Don't take any action against these three men. And it was, as we've already said here, only, only um, the video coming to light that finally forced action here. So I don't think we should forget that history as we celebrate the positive sides of what this verdict means. Right, Patricia? Well, I think that's exactly right. I'll um, take up first uh, Judge Wamsley's role. Um, well, Margaret is so right that this was a case um, for the Arbery family and uh, concentrated on Georgia case law. Um, the story and the drama as it unfolded was consumed by the entire country because this was broadcast, um, because people could um, go back and review everything that led up to this point. Um, there was just an enormous emotional investment in the country about the direction that this was going. And so I think that the tenor that Judge Wamsley set, um, particularly standing up for the right of black pastors to be in that courtroom, um, for the um, Arbery family to have the people in the courtroom whom they choose if there is no kind of disruption, um, and really standing up for the right of the family to do that. And just the mere presence of a black pastor in a courtroom is certainly not um, offensive or aggressive. Uh, I think that that was a really important tone for him to set. Um, and he did it, I think, again and again in, in large ways and small. And I think that helped people observing this from the outside uh, have confidence in the fact that this was a courtroom um, that wasn't automatically stacked against the prosecution, um, even though it was uh, in the same place as in the same county as where uh, the crime was committed. I think it gave people confidence in the process, which was really important um, outside the courtroom and outside of Glen County, um, just because our country is hanging on all of these details um, with every word. Um, and then secondly, in terms of um, the larger problem here of uh, the justice system, uh, not just in Glen County, but across the country, um, I think that we're going to really start to unpack this and find out um, not only why did it take 74 days uh, for local prosecutors not to do anything, and it took the GBI two days uh, to bring down um, uh, uh, murder uh, indictments. Um, that is, is something that I think is crucially important. Um, so both with the prosecution, or not the prosecution, but the indictment of Jackie Johnson for her role in that, I think sends a very loud message to local prosecutors about uh, the fact that this it simply cannot be tolerated. And for the state to have an investigation, the state to bring down that indictment um, to a Glen County grand jury, um, I think is hugely important. And then um, for what Margaret brought up in terms of um, the, the very low bar for um, jury selection here in Georgia, I think all of this is gonna be uh, of real importance to the Georgia General Assembly going forward. Um, they have now, of course, passed 
a hate crime statute here in Georgia. They have changed um, the citizen's arrest statute. I think the jury selection piece is going to be really important going forward. I know that Democrats also are going to ask um, or look to pass a law to deal um, also with stand your ground laws here in Georgia. So I think this is just the beginning of a process um, to figure out um, how in the world could this have happened um, at the criminal justice system, and then how can we change that going forward? Um, I've got to get to a break. Um, I want to continue this conversation. I know that all three of you have a lot more to say in terms of this story. We'll do that when we come back in just a moment. We're back now on this special uh, day after Thanksgiving live edition of Political Rewind. If you weren't with us at the top of the show, I'm apologizing in advance for my audio uh, quality. I'm um, with my family on the coast. Uh, and so I'm, uh, we're, we're doing this show at, at, because we believe it's important to, but I'm, I'm calling in like our panelists do, and those panelists are uh, Professor Andrew Gillespie, Emory University, uh, Margaret Coker, Editor-in-Chief of The Current, and Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and columnist. Um, Margaret, let me ask you to pick up on the, what I said about Wamsley. He, he, he did seem to be a calming presence in that courtroom, contrasted, say, to the judge we saw in the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial, where, where he just raised the temperature in Kenosha on every aspect of that trial. So what were your observations about Wamsley? Right. So um, Judge Wamsley is uh, from Savannah, where I live, and you know, he came up in his law career um, working for a very well-known white shoe firm here called Hunter McLean. The original uh, named partners of uh, of that law firm, uh, Malcolm McLean, is known around Savannah as, as also being a calming force. He was instrumental in helping the integration process through the, uh, the civil rights era here in Savannah. And so Judge Wamsley doesn't have a background in civil rights case law. He has a background in corporate law, but still that's the that's the environment through which he came up as, as a young lawyer. And so within the courtroom in Brunswick, he, as I, I've been saying this over and over, he turned what could be a three ring circus into a one ring circus, right? He really uh, narrowed with his rulings before the trial started. He narrowed the path for the defense to be able to do what has been done so many awful times in the past, which is put a victim on trial here. Mm-hmm. And so um, he, he really decided, I think, um, quite deliberately that justice for all means justice for all, no matter the color of your skin. And so he kept people on the straight and narrow, both prosecution and defense. But his rulings, you know, against the defense and, and the ridiculous motions that were raised over and over again to a um, keep black pastors out of the courtroom, but also to keep demonstrators off of the public uh, property outside the, the courthouse every day. There's just time and time again where where there were over the top statements made in court that he shut down right away. And if you allow me, Bill, to go back to Jackie Johnson, the former DA of of the Brunswick Circuit, um, I just want to put out a a couple of of fact checks. One is which that she um, everything that we believe uh, that she did wrong is always allegedly right. She's still awaiting her day in court and she's facing one felony charge and one misdemeanor charge for abusing her office. But we still don't really know what happened on those crucial hours on February 23rd, 2020, when the police were arrived on the scene after um, as Arbery was was dying and bleeding out um, on the street. They took all three suspects in that afternoon. 
They had the videotape, uh, sorry, the cell phone video evidence that we've all seen, and they allowed all three suspects to go home. Yeah. Jackie Johnson um, recused herself by the next morning. The, the the local Glen County police were already being told to liaise with the with George Barnhill, who is the Waycross District Waycross Judicial Circuit DA. Now, five six days after Arbery was killed. There was a grand jury indictment in Glen County separately, completely separately, but the chief of police and three other senior officers were indicted on their own criminal separate charges. And so the police force in Glen County was in a tailspin. It was in a complete mess. And everybody wants to know why there were no arrests made. Well, there's a lot of questions that are still need answers to, and there's probably a lot of blame to still go around. I first of all thank you for clarifying the timeline on on, on the Johnson uh, uh, recusal uh, from the case. I appreciate your doing that. Andrew, you're welcome to weigh in on Wamsley. Anything that we've talked about, but I also would like to ask you another question as start this part of the conversation. I'm fascinated by the fact that the Rittenhouse uh, uh, verdict uh, exposed once again the sharp, harsh partisan divide in this country. Um, Different trial, different circumstances, I understand that. But this trial, um, we had the governor, we had the attorney general of Georgia, we had other Republicans, Eric Erickson, for goodness sake, Republicans congratulating the jury for their action. We didn't see the same partisan divide in this case. I'm fascinated by that, and I'd love for you to comment on that and whatever else you're thinking right now about this case. Well, I'm fascinated by it, but I'm not surprised. Um, I think the fact pattern in, in this case was a lot clearer than it was in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, and it was the murkiness of that that I think inserted a lot of reasonable doubt. So, you know, as, as we talked on the show before, right, the video evidence that the jurors saw in the Rittenhouse case suggested that he didn't make the first move. And so, therefore, I think people gave him the benefit of the doubt and that he had a credible case for self-defense. You know, I think what people got hung up on you know, nationally, when you look at, at Rittenhouse, is the idea that he shouldn't have had the gun and he shouldn't have been there because who lets the 17-year-old go out and be a vigilante? Um, but that wasn't what was actually on trial in that particular case. The question was, did he have a right to defend himself? And yes, even 17-year-olds have a right to defend themselves when they're out past curfew and not doing what they should be doing. Um, and so I think people are going to have a hard, you know, hard time with the legal facts of the case because, like, the moral lesson to many things, particularly clear. Um, in this particular case, right, many of us saw the video. So we saw Arbery getting hunted down right before he got shot. Um, and, you know, we saw and suspected the racial animus that was there. This is obvious old fashioned types of racism that though they've resurfaced in the last five years are the things that, you know, uh, were repudiated in the civil rights movement of the mid 20th century. And so these are the places where people, there's a lot of consensus, um, you know, that like that's racist, that's wrong, we shouldn't do that. So, you know, in survey work we've done at, at JWJI, right, if I ask people certain questions about certain types of racism, there is consensus even across party lines on certain basic types of obvious things like segregation is wrong, hate crimes are wrong, racial slurs are wrong. Right. It's when you start to get into the things that, uh, you know, talk about sort of unfair advantages that accumulate over time or you might be talking about, you know, other things that are more subtle. 
that you start to see the, you know, that, that you start to see people taking different sides depending on sort of where they fall in terms of their privilege um, or even where they might fall in terms of their, um, of their partisanship. But, uh, uh, but this one was obvious, right? This looks like a, a modern day lynching. And so I think because of it, it was easy for everybody to jump on the bandwagon and recognize that this one was wrong. That's usually not my concern. My concern sort of, you know, in the grand scheme of things is when can we develop a consensus that racism manifests itself in ways that is not as obvious as a bunch mm-hmm. of guys hunting a black man as he's walking down the street. Um, that's when I know that our society has made progress. And, and, and that's the thing that I'm still, you know, hopeful we can get there, but still, you know, waiting with bated breath because I think we have a long way to go before we really hit that moment of consensus. Um, I, I, I love the way you broke that down. Patricia, weigh in on this. Well, so I think um, I uh, in in agreement really with just all of those points. I think that um, uh, because I uh, cover politics, I always look at how this is going to affect um, kind of the political environment uh, here in Georgia, um, but more importantly, how it's really going to affect um, what our politicians and elected leaders uh, do to prevent something like this in the future. Um, and having covered uh, the, the process when uh, state lawmakers were um, working through the citizen's arrest statute that was really completely overhauled but not quite eliminated, um, this was, I think, a wake-up call for a number of lawmakers in Georgia um, just how seriously um, systemic racism is still in place to the point that anything like this could even have happened. Um, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in a way that was just so blatantly um, just horrifying to watch and the fact that um, that uh, charges were not brought immediately, I think was a wake-up call to, um, to lawmakers under the Capitol who um, I think literally didn't know that this was still possible and that they need to start working on legislation to put into place to make sure that it just simply cannot happen again. Um, and I think it also, for a number of lawmakers, gave them a real sense of um, what does systemic racism look like in its most blatant, brutal form as a man simply running down the street and killed for running down the street, um, suspected of uh, doing something um, untoward simply because he is black in a white neighborhood. Um, I think they literally didn't understand that that is still a reality in many parts of the state. And so I think this will um, continue to have reverberations. Um, I think they have addressed the low-hanging fruit when it comes to hate crimes, when it comes to um, also overhauling that citizen's arrest statute, which had not been even dealt with since 1873. Mm. Um, however, I think that there are going to be some harder conversations when it comes to um, addressing stand-your-ground legislation and other types of legislation that recognize and address systemic racism. I think that is going to be the real test here. Um, but I think that having these um, these murder convictions um, from a jury in Glen County will give them um, the opportunity to recognize that more needs to be done here. Margaret, before I have to get to our final break, uh, your thoughts. Right. So um, congratulations to the residents of Glen County, and I hope that they are enjoying a well-fought uh, emotional victory um, after this verdict. But the reality when they wake up um, after this weekend is, is sort of looks like this. Um, Glen County has um, Georgia's 
uh, wealthiest zip code, and it has some of the deepest entrenched uh, pockets of poverty. And the pockets of poverty are in majority black Brunswick, and the rich people live on, on across the causeway, on the barrier islands, um, on Sea Island and St. Simon's Island. The Glen County Board of Commissioners is seven people. Only one of those commissioners is black. There's six white people who help decide how to spend uh, the money that the county collects. There, um, the public high schools are, um, one is rated fairly well across the state, one is not. Um, the, the group of people that go to the less highly rated public high school are the black kids. So there are ways in which that structural racism, historic racism, helps to shape um, the futures of all the other black children and black teenagers and young adults that still live in Brunswick. There are, um, in the wake of Ahmed Arbery's killing, there are immensely motivated and talented um, community groups that have risen up um, in outrage, um, wanting a better Glen. And one of the um, most active of these groups is actually called A Better Glen, a group of black professionals who decided that they were either going to move back to Brunswick and, and make the place better for their children and, and use their, their extraordinary talents to do just that. So it is a long fight ahead. And, um, and, and yeah, I, um, we, we all live in hope. So, Andra, uh, before we go to the break, Margaret Coker brings some facts to what you said from the very start of the show today. Yes, we should be grateful that the verdict turned out the way it did, but we are still dealing, and we hear it in those in the data that Margaret just shared with us, uh, systemic racism. It's not going away. We better be careful about how vigorously we pat ourselves in the back, on the backs as a result of this verdict. I agree. And, and this actually does tie into national debate. So Margaret can um, talk about those figures. Those figures point to patterns of systemic racism. If I were to bring this up in certain K-12 classrooms around the country, there would be parents who would be saying that I was promoting critical race theory. Um, not understand. And, and, and so this is the problem. Like when you don't want us to talk about history, when you don't want us to talk about how it affects people's day-to-day lives, when you don't want us to talk about what privilege is because it makes you feel uncomfortable, it creates the environment in which the Ahmad Arboreys can be killed. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'd love to say this all ended when the Civil War ended 150 years ago or with the signing of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, but it didn't. And it is, you know, it, it is irresponsible. It is anti-intellectual for us to promote something other than that. So these are the things that we have to fight today, and we have to see the connections between, um, you know, the type of environment that empowered people to think that they could kill Ahmad Arbery, um, and uh, for thinking that, you know what, there were laws that could have almost tripped up that we have now had to go back and revisit to understand that that's what the process is, and it is not about some, you know, uh, you know, wicked plot to indoctrinate your children to, you know, some, you know, misguided notion of wokeness, which is, you know, it's really unfortunate that that's the way this discussion has unfolded across the country and even in our state as well. All right. Let's take our final break of the show and we'll be back with more in a moment. Before before we go back to our conversation, I want to make a couple of very quick points. Um, first of all, many of us were very fortunate that yesterday we were able to sit down with friends, family around tables with abundant uh, food and drink and had a wonderful 
day. I'd really love to encourage us. We're going to talk about this more on the show in the weeks before uh, Christmas. I would really love to encourage all of us to think about the community food banks in our in, in our own cities, wherever you are in the state, because there are so many people who did not have the kind of Thanksgiving that those of us who are fortunate did. So keep that in mind, I hope, as you think about how you want to celebrate the upcoming holidays. And the second very quick thing is we talked a lot about gratitude at our table yesterday, and I talked about my gratitude for family. What I have to say very quickly is how grateful I am for this team for our brand new senior producer, Natalie Mendenhall, for Sam Burmistaz, our producer, for our engineer, uh, Jesse Nyswanger, for Sarah Callis, who stepped in as a temporary producer for the show. I'm so happy that I get to work with such a wonderful group of people. And finally, when I had people like Andre Gillespie and Margaret Coker and Patricia Murphy on this show, I feel an extraordinary sense of gratitude because they come on and share with us such knowledge. So thank you all. Okay, Patricia, one last thing that I want to talk about with the Arbery case. There was a common theme between Rittenhouse and Arbery, and that's the abundance of guns. Kyle Rittenhouse was able to get a hold of an assault weapon and carry it through the streets of Kenosha. In Brunswick, uh, the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan thought nothing. What it, it was interesting to hear the testimony. They saw this black man running down the street, and the first thing they did was grab their guns and chase him down. And Patricia, while the legislature addressed many issues surrounding things like hate crimes and uh, citizens' arrest, it's unlikely they're going to do anything about the availability of weapons in this state. Oh, it is not just unlikely. It is just not going to happen. And I can just tell you that having been in a number of these hearings, um, there have been a number of hearings recently at the state level about uh, violence, especially in Atlanta and Metro Atlanta. And um, there was a moment when the uh, deputy uh, police chief here in Atlanta uh, was talking about a huge problem that the Atlanta police running into is that people leave their cars unlocked and then criminals will steal everything in the car, including the guns in the car. And he said, if people, if we could just find a way to have people not leave their own guns and their car to be stolen, the police in the city would be much safer and Atlantans would be much safer. And he said, perhaps people could have a, a safe, a gun safe in their cars. Um, and that uh, this entire hearing about violence in Atlanta turned into um, rebuttal from uh, the Republican leaders on that committee to say, well, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, maybe people need those guns. Maybe what we need to do is change, loosen the gun laws so that people can carry, they can have open carry, and just then they wouldn't have to leave it in their cars. They could just carry their guns everywhere. Um, And I think that was just a microcosm of the reality of gun safety legislation in this state at the state level. Um, if there will be any movement, it would be at the federal level. But even I think it's obvious that um, the, the votes in the Senate um, would not be sufficient to move anything yeah. significant. So um, gun safety is an entirely uh, different conversation, but an integral part of the problem. And the political intransigence on that uh, topic is very real. Margaret? Yeah, so two points very locally. Um, One is that um, when Travis McMichael took the stand in his defense during the trial, he he claimed that he was, um, he became scared of Ahmed Arbery um, in a previous encounter that he had 10 days, 12 days before um, they killed 
um, Ahmad Arbery. And in that encounter, um, Ahmad Arbery allegedly put his hands to his waist and Travis McMichael concluded that he may be armed. And that one move um, was enough to send um, this family, the McMichael family, into this tizzy that turned into a murderous rage um, 12 days later. Now we get back to who has the who has the right to self-defense? Who has the right to arm themselves in, in self-defense when we are all Americans? And if gun rights are good for one group of people, it should be good for all groups of people. But again, to Patricia's point about gun safety, um, the McMichaels also had a gun stolen from one of their unlocked cars in the Satilla Shores neighborhood. And that was one of only a handful of documented burglaries that had happened in that neighborhood in the year of 2019. But again, that handful of burglaries turned into, um, for some people in that neighborhood, an entire point of anxiety that kept them on Facebook, that kept them riled up, that kept them in this chain of gossip and innuendo that then escalated to Ahmad Arbery's death. So all of these issues are so intertwined, it's hard to unpack them all. But I would think that, again, if right-minded people think that killing in cold blood is wrong, that we might be able to come to some agreement about what we can do to mitigate that from happening. Um, Andre, if you don't mind, um, I'd like you to close us out. Take us to the close because we're getting close. Um, I'm going to change the question if if I can. How significant do you see this trial? I started the show by saying this is without question one of the most important stories I have had to cover since moving to Georgia more than 35 years ago. How important was this case? How big a milestone is it? And even though we know we've got a long way to go on dealing with racism, how significant has it been? So, you know, it is significant in Georgia because uh, were it not for Ahmaud Arbery's death, we would not have our hate crime bill, which had, you know, stalled for decades, um, you know, in the General Assembly. Um, and, you know, while I'm grateful for that, I also mourn that it takes the shedding of black blood in order to hit milestones. So, you know, whether it is a hate crime law in Georgia, whether it is removing the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House, which happens after the Charleston um, Mother Emanuel massacre or other kinds of things. Black people, one, have been giving their life and service to this country, you know, since the founding of the Republic. So it shouldn't have to come this way. I think the sad thing is, is that this case holds up a mirror to ourselves that we have a misplaced kind of gun-toting version of masculinity that is then hyped with fear of black people. So black people are scary wherever they are. And I think we need to like really reflect on what that looks like, and we need to kind of change our attitudes and our behaviors accordingly. Andrew Gillespie, i got to stop you there, but thank you for that conclusion and for being here. Margaret Coker, to you as well. Patricia Murphy, very quickly, what's your column for Sunday? What's the preview? Well, to lighten the mood in the state, I'm writing about Pierre Howard's new hobby of oh, photographing rare butterflies. Photographing <laughs> butterflies, I saw that. Sounds great. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you all for giving up time on your holiday weekend to be with us. And you as listeners, uh, too. We're back, of course, on Monday. In the meantime, have a great weekend. I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Goodbye, everybody. 